This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back. This is the Struck Podcast, episode 26. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett, and I'm joined here remotely with our lightning protection expert, Alan Hall. Alan, how are you? Hey, great, Dan. Boy, another troubling week for Boeing with the 787. On the engineering side of all things, uh, it's just the hits keep on coming there. It's got to stop at some point, don't you think? You'd think so. It's like spreading amongst their fleet now. So in today's (laughs) show... We're going to start with some of the 737 MAX testing. So Yas has been testing them, and we'll talk about what, they, uh, what they're doing and how it's going. Um, in our engineering segment, we're going to talk about Boeing 787 issues. So the Dreamliner's got some vertical fin safety issues. Uh, sounds like shim problems. So yikes, another potential nightmare, I guess, for right now. Yeah. Um, also, we're going to chat a little bit about Chevron's and their use in reducing uh, engine noise, because obviously jet engines are like the most intensely loud things on the planet so every uh, effort to reduce that is you know important even a yeah. couple decibels right. and then lastly in our electric tech session we'll talk about uh, pipistrol and one of their new cargo planes that they're hoping can really take off uh, no pun intended the nuva v300 is they're hoping can tackle uh, the helicopter market and replace them where you know we got to ship cargo out to an oil rig or we got to ship it out to some other place where helicopters traditionally the only place they can get there but these evtols are going to be coming for that market so i know you um are a proponent of getting away from helicopters which are in many respects do you think more (laughs) difficult to maintain yeah and have some pretty spectacular uh, failures when they do fail, which is scary. So anyway, so let's talk with, uh, let's talk first about the 737 max. So Yas has been testing it. How has it been going? 737 flight testing concluded up in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, just recently with, um, it looks like there was multiple certification authorities, uh, participating in that, uh, Yas, obviously transport Canada would have been there. And it sounds like the Brazilians were there too. So there is, uh, a lot of eyeballs on the 737. The the flight test uh, would be a low-risk thing at this point. So there's been, at least listening to the news reports, there's been no unexpected outcome of that. Boeing would have been flying it anyway and, and checking to make sure that the angle of attack sensors and all the, um, all the, the, the sort of the flight management uh, difficulties that they had would have would have been taken care of. So it's it's a check in the box, but also to to uh, have some external eyes watching what happens in the cockpit and see how pilots respond to stuff. So um, that's a good checkpoint to have done. The next step, though, is probably the most important. And I always get frustrated when I see this when I think it was an EASA representative said, "Well, we're going to make sure that it's safe." Well, <laughs> the FAA is the prime certification authority it'd be like if uh, airbus is certifying a new airbus a3 whatever uh, that EASA would be the lead on it and uh, the faa would just be sort of in a verification mode not a recertification mode 
so when we see things in the press that sound like EASA is taking a recertification mode, that they're going to take the FAA data as uh, something nice to have, but they're going to do their own little um, certification approval in a sense, that's frustrating. That's really frustrating mm-hmm. because then it's just left up to opinion. There are rules. The rules between the United States and all the other certification authorities in the world are pretty closely aligned. I doubt there's any differences between EASA and the FAA in these particular areas. So what's the holdup? Once the FAA has signed it off and blessed it, and EASA can do the review of it like they should, rightly so. But now now we're in some sort of negotiation phase. So they're going to be meeting at Gatwick Airport in London, Boeing, EASA, Transport Canada sounded like the pretty much anybody want to show up to the to the party and uh, talk about things like pilot training issues, what is involved with that, uh, any sort of flight manual adjustments that that are proposed would be discussed in there, and hammer out those details. And I I would assume the FAA is going to be there also. So <laughs> you, you like to be a fly on the wall in that place because it's probably a little bit of loud talking will happen. Uh, and we're in an election year in the United States, of course, which adds to the level of intensity to what's happening. I, you know, Dan, I just really struggle with some of these things. It isn't like the FAA made a horrendous mistake. I think there was just a lot of complexity to what had happened originally. And he also mm-hmm. didn't catch it either um, in their review. And they had a chance to review it too. And I, I think it just the complexity caught up everybody because systems are becoming more and more complex, particularly as we add them on to older generation aircraft. And now we're in this sort of, I don't trust you um, scenario, <laughs> which is doesn't, good build, doesn't build good bilateral relationships. And the FAA has been trying to do that for the last several years. And it's just not good for the industry. And uh, hopefully the FAA doesn't do it to Airbus, right? That's the point, is that we don't hold it up because we can. We're holding it because there's some real risk. And um, none of the accidents happen in in European flight territory. So we'll see. Uh, don't, you get, don't you get the feeling like some of this is political at this point? Yeah, it feels a little strange, like they're not necessarily working together and that they're trying to go their own way. It's, yeah, it's, it seems strange. Yeah. All right. So in our engineering segment here, we've got some more Boeing seven or some more Boeing aircraft stuff. So this is the seven eighty seven, the Dreamliner, um, and they've got some vertical tail fin issues. So it sounds like at the end of last year, this was starting to be addressed. It was found, and um, I guess like shimmed gaps. Uh, weren't quite where they needed to be. And you said shimming is actually a really difficult task as far as making certain parts that have to it is. very exactly line up. Like it's, and it sounds really, really tough. Cause obviously like I used to work on cars and high school into college. And sometimes you have to be extremely precise trying to slide the right one in there. So I can imagine aviation and aerospace is just way, way more at stake. So tell us a little bit about this, this problem. So shimming is a, a commonly used techniques to made up two usually larger parts. And as you get as parts get larger and you're trying to have very uh, exact interfaces between large part A and large part B, what you'll find is that they don't exactly fit. And when you try to put fasteners, bolts, and things of that sort uh, through those structures to tighten them together, basically to hold them together, 
slight variations uh, between the two can cause issues on those fasteners. Um, so if the parts aren't exactly flat, flush, made it together, then you need to fill those voids with something so that you do get flat, flush, loaded joints. Uh, because you can break the you can break the bolts of the fasteners off, or you can break in the, in the case of composite mm-hmm. structure, you start breaking a, breaking apart the composite structure. So if you think about and and the one that I first remember on the seven eight seven, it sounded like they had an aft fuselage to fuselage joint. So you got these two round things that are heavy, and gravity kind of makes them oblong. So you have to actually make them round again with fixturing, and you kind of stick them together, and then. Uh, add shims where needed. Now, there's really there's three ways to shim something. So, you can put what we call a liquid shim. So it's like an epoxy essentially that you fill that void up with. So you actually make the two together, fill that void up, pull them apart, um, inspect them, and then put it back together with that epoxy in place, and then put the bolts in. That's liquid shim. There is uh, solid shim. So typically a piece of carbon fiber or fiberglass or in metal place be like peelable shims, aluminum shims. But anyhow, uh, you would put a solid piece between them. So you'd actually look at the parts, go in there, measure them. If they're too wide apart, you'd actually stick in a piece of, of plastic or metal. And then when the bolt comes through, everything's flush. And then there's some things that are just like sorted in between. So it's kind of like liquid, solid, combination of the two. So you do mostly solid and then you put liquid inside of there. Everybody has their own way of, way of doing it. But the difficulty is, is that when you, it, when you first make that uh, connection or you put the two pieces together and you're checking for gaps, that's sort of like a little bit of an artwork thing. Uh, and it, it takes a lot of knowledge and you have to have experience doing it because it's not easy. Because when you're dealing with large structures like the vertical stabilizer and it kind of bumps into the back of the of the, of the fuselage back there, uh, that's a big joint. And there's in any sort of misalignment between those two as you're trying to shim will result in incorrect shimming. Or if... Uh, and and this is the can be an issue with some of the liquid shims. If you don't mix them properly, and they don't set up right, well, or they're too brittle at the end, then they may break or or not be as reliable and be be too soft to handle the load. So uh, you you gotta really be careful with shims. And what, what the seventy seven thing sounds like is that they have a general shimming issue. Either the the process is off, the fixturing is off. The training is off. Something that's sort of a universal that's going on. Whereas they assemble the larger components of the aircraft, they're not getting the the, the pieces properly shimmed. Uh, you know, and you sort of your worst case nightmare Detroit automotive adventures where people were sabotaging that kind of cars for a while when they were going on strike. You think, my gosh, who would sabotage a car? Well, you know, stuff like that occasionally does happen on airplanes and people go to jail for that stuff and rightly so. So hopefully this is just a process issue and not some sort of other significant issue. Cause right now the thing that's going on with the 787 is they got two factories and they really need one. And mm-hmm. right. And when that happens uh, and you had a non-union shop in South Carolina, which is where these problems appear to be. And then you got the union shop up in, and Washington State, so it wouldn't be beyond the realm of thinking that there's something going on there. And 
hopefully we're tracking it down, right? And that we've got this issue figured out. But there are aircraft out in the field right now where there's eight. I think there's a total of eight that they flagged so far. But as they go through this process of trying to figure out where other shimming issues may occur, that may grow a little bit. The problem is, if you think about, and, and Dan, if, if you think about, I'll give you the good example on shims. Like, so on shims, uh, like in a, in a motor, there are shims in an automotive motor, right? Uh, for lifters, whatever. So if, when you, shims tend to be buried deep inside of things. And if you have to take apart a, an automotive engine, it's going to take a while to fix the shims. You get the wrong shims in there, or you got the wrong shims in your suspension. It's not like a five-minute task. Well, mm-hmm. some, of these, some of these shims on these aircraft are going to take days, weeks to, to fix. Uh, you, you basically have to take apart the joint, measure it, support it while you're doing that, and then reassemble the thing properly. You're going to eat up a bunch of time that you wouldn't don't have scheduled right now. So the cost is not so much in the... You know, just the piece parts. It's not a piece part. Hopefully, it's not just not a piece part issue where you're replacing large sections of the aircraft. It's more of I got to take apart these joints, probably take out fasteners, remeasure, reshim, put it all back together, reinspect. Uh, yeah, it's just going to be a bunch of time. Those those things are deep, deep in the aircraft structure. So, fun days ahead for some seven eight seven uh, Boeing employees to go fix all those things. Yeah, it sounds like a ton of work and it's just like another thing added just to the pile of uh, of Boeing issues lately. So it's unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Chevron. So obviously jet engines, crazy loud. And it's an issue because as they redesign airports and they try to expand airports and expand the capacity of airports, um, a, a friend of mine was actually a, a consultant and she worked for a company that would do these environmental studies for mm. airports and they'd see like they have to be within certain specs of how much noise is leaking out into the community and there's right. lots and lots of stuff involved so it's a important business and there's a lot on you know at stake trying to keep noise down coming from airports so right. chevrons are these cutting and i've seen them in on you know, on the runway and a lot of southwest uh, jets have them i was like why is it shaped like that but what is the shape? I mean, it makes it look kind of like uh, almost like a flame sort of thing. Like it's yeah. very sharp into yeah. like a what's so what's the deal with these uh, called chevrons? Well, it's just like a ripple on the trailing edge of the engine nacelles on the back end, and and they, mm-hmm. they used to call them um, daisy petals. Um, what we, we used to be called hush kits. This is back in the seventies, early eighties. Uh, Nordam in Oklahoma was one of the first ones to put what we called hush kits, uh, which are additions to the back ends of 737 engines because the original 737 engines were basically a jet engine, so they were noisy and smoky mm-hmm. too. So they added these um, uh, tailored shaped, they kind of look like a flower if you looked at the end of it, shaped exhaust systems to uh, to quiet 
down the engine noise. And so what you're doing is you're basically uh, mixing the hot air from the center of the engine, where the hot section of the engine is, to the outer area, which is where the fan case, is, where the fan blade is. And you're trying to use the cold air and the warm air that are coming off and not, because the hot air is expanding. So what you're hearing in the jet engine is the hot air just coming out and expanding rapidly, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to use that thrust, that's what propels you to move forward. So uh, so you got part part fan, obviously you're blowing the air, that's part of it, that's part of the fan, but you also have the, the mass times acceleration part, which is the burning of fuel that's coming out the back end of this jet engine, much like a rocket engine. So that hot air, when it expands, makes all kinds of noise, right? So you hear the hot air expansion. That's what why a rocket sounds loud. That's why a jet engine sounds loud. So what you do is you basically mix cool air and hotter air at the back end. You kind of uh, absorb it. Take the hot air and kind of quasi-absorb it into the cold air, so to speak. And it lowers the noise down. So you can do very unique aerodynamic things to control noise, but also increase thrust and increase efficiency. So uh, if you look in the back end, like if you look at the back end of a uh, any modern jet uh, turbofan engine, you're going to see all kinds of little uh, uh, acoustic um, devices from the composite structure has specific, uh, it's like stainless steel grid and honeycombs and different things inside of the the structure of those nacelles to absorb noise. They're noise deadening systems. Uh, you, if you look in the back, you sometimes see a, you see a bunch of like looks like laser drilled holes on the inside mm-hmm. of these nacelles, which is a sort of a mixing quieting thing also. So uh, the serrations on with the chevrons you see are similar to what we see on owls and other birds, which is uh, a way to keep them quieter. Now, obviously, an owl is not burning jet A and creating this rocket noise, but the philosophy is sort of similar, right? You're trying to quiet the airflow, um, quiet the expansion of the hot gases coming out the back end and, and make it more environmentally compatible with the neighborhoods where these airports are located. And you're right. Uh, there are specific regulations, Dan, that that call out how noisy yeah. your aircraft engine can be, and they run tests. They have microphones that go out and they measure how noisy your aircraft engine is. So it's not just the engine. Obviously, the engine's noisy. Let's just get over that. You know, the engine's noisy. So what you do is it's all this stuff on the outside, the exhaust nozzle and all the uh, the cells and the and the oodles and oodles and piles and piles of money people spend for these nacelles which are not just there as aerodynamic coverings, they are acoustic devices, really complicated acoustic and thermal devices to quiet everything down substantially. That's why in today, uh, well, I'll give you an example. So back in the 80s, people complained about living next to airports. Like, well, then don't move to the airport. But what has happened over time is that people get close and close to the airports at the same time, the airplanes have gotten quieter and quieter and quieter. So, um, it's and, almost and, like a push. You yeah, so they're getting quieter. It's right. Kind of a, yeah. Well, so they're quieter. Let's move closer. But also, have you if you've flown uh, to some of these airports like Chicago Midway and some others, and when you take off, when you take off, like you come shooting down the runway like you're a Formula One race car, and then they pull the nose up, and you get this kind of roller coaster effect going on, and they kind of come up, and then they kind of use inertia to get them up to altitude, and then they cut power. 
<laughs> right? So you're like, I don't know, you're oh, probably 3,000 feet or so up in the air. And they kind of cut power, and you like get this floating effect like you're like you're in a space capsule, a space shuttle, or a space station or something. Like, whoa, you get this negative G effect going on. And, and then they throttle it down until uh, they get outside of the, the city area, and then they can throttle it back up again. So not only are they trying to control noise with all the engineering um, technology that they're putting into the engines and engines themselves, but they're also changing the way that the pilots fly the airplane. And it makes it kind of, and some of those pilots take that as a little bit of fun, in my opinion. They make it seem like a little bit of fun because rarely do you put a, a commercial aircraft in sort of a negative G situation, but it, it sure does feel like mm -hmm. you're on a roller coaster. <laughs> some of these flights like, whoa, <laughs> I'm starting to float here. I better tighten that seatbelt so I don't hit my head on the ceiling kind of a feeling. Yeah. So it's complicated. Uh, you know, the, the noise rules have been in effect for a number of years now. They're not new anymore. And when they first came out, it was a big hubbub about it and the world was ending. But like usual, engineers step up and do the impossible. And here we are, still flying commercial airlines. All right. On our final segment here, we talk frequently about uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. This week is no exception. So today we're talking about Pipistrol. They have a cargo plane, the Nuva V300, and they say it can uh, carry up to 460 kilograms. And really, it seems like they're going to come after, again, the traditional market for helicopters, which yeah. seems seems like a natural, a very natural progression. So you obviously have been in the industry a long time. You have some pretty strong feelings about helicopters. So yeah. tell us, Alan, would you like to see helicopters replaced? Because I think I know. Yeah. This. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, they have a role. Obviously, they have a role. But having fewer people on them is even better, right? Uh, and, and they become a little more utilitarian in the sense that um, it's kind of that cost reward risk assessment, risk reward sort of thing that you want to try to balance out. Is it worth um, putting people in some of these situations? And if you got a essentially a, a disposable aircraft, not any aircraft is disposable, but it kind of is, and if you put it in these rough weather situations or if you're going to, out to fly, uh, fly it out to oil, oil rigs, which is in some extreme environments, then if you're just moving cargo back and forth, then yeah, absolutely. It takes it takes some of the risk out of, of uh, losing somebody in the ocean out there because when helicopter crashes into the ocean and you're on a little life raft in the middle of nowhere, that's not a fun day. So it makes sense uh, to, to use an electric unmanned vehicle to move cargo. It sure does. Um, and I, I, I'd, you know, I, I think they're just, just like anything else. Uh, are, are we are we trying to create a new marketplace or do we know an existing marketplace we have today that's going to make money? Because yeah. the, the future marketplace is rough because those may not ever occur, whereas you like to have some cash flow from known sales, right? It's, it's sort of the FedEx effect if you can get FedEx or even Amazon to to buy your aircraft to do package deliveries great there's a marketplace there totally is do you think that though that some of these companies like pipstrol that are involved in this are looking to be purchased though because if i'm amazon fedex ups um dhl any any of these sort of larger 
players in the package delivery market, why would I not just buy them out and just buy the technology? And yeah, it definitely seems right for that, right? I mean, and and to to jump back to the autonomous flight, yeah, I mean, these are going to have a preloaded flight plan, and you know, they say it's a highly reliable um, flight control. So obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot that's going to have to go into proving that, like in you know, in in real life. But that's a pretty unique flexibility. But like you said, they don't. Nec- they're going to have to find their customers. And they're right. going to have to find companies that want to, yeah, we, we, you know, we've been doing this helicopter route and transporting, you know, this, this year, we'd love to swap it for this, uh, you know, autonomous, um, you know, EVTOL. But I think, like you said, it makes, it's, I think might be a hard proposition to turn down where they're a small, but growing company taking on a lot of debt, developing this plane, you know, this aircraft and Amazon's like, Hey, that's essentially like a, like a nickel for us to just buy your company. <laughs> What do you guys say? <laughs> you know, all your founders become multi multi millionaires. Eh, that probably sounds pretty good. You don't have to find customers, and they just there it goes. So right, yeah. I mean, you know more than more than it, more than I about how difficult it is a to get certified, and then b to yeah. all right to like let's start churning through planes to make money, like we talked about. You know, with Hector, mm-hmm. um, you know, just how hard it is, even with really substantial venture backed capital to get a new aircraft company to market. Obviously, Pipistrel's been around for a while, so they have a track record, but right. um, at the same time, it's a, it's a big it's a big uh, investment there. It's so, a big financial risk. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a hundred million, depending on the size of this thing, a hundred million to a 500 million sort of investment, and you have to get it, your money back airplane by airplane by airplane and yeah. selling parts. So you better have some pretty deep pockets if you plan on making this thing run, you know, in the long in the long run, you'll be profitable if if you can sell probably a couple hundred of these things, uh, and and that's where someone like an Amazon can actually provide some help here. One of the one of the bigger problems on small aircraft companies is that the quantities of parts or components that are specific to the aircraft that they're buying from uh, suppliers forces the cost up on the suppliers. So there's no quantity as a scale going on here. I'm going to make 50 of these widgets for these aircraft a year. Well, I can't tool up for that. And that's a, that's a big problem in that over time, uh, the, the, the costs go up unless they can get big quantities where if they've got a thousand aircraft order from Amazon or a 5,000 aircraft order from a FedEx, that all changes where you can get that some of that cash up front or FedEx just buys you and takes over and they have the impetus and the drive and the logistics chain to uh, kind of find suppliers that can help keep costs down and make the aircraft this less expensive overall. There's It's a big driver. This is why new aircraft companies struggle so much because you got to sell a lot of aircraft to get the you know, your profit to, to, to cost ratio gets all screwed up if you can't deliver enough aircraft. So it's, there's one part about selling aircraft, but you also want to sell enough that your your costs go down on, on the component side and, and your overhead gets distributed over a larger number of aircraft. And on small aircraft quantities, that just never really happens. And it's a struggle. So I really seems like a lot of these EV2L companies are, are looking for uber money 
uh, or Amazon money or somebody Google money that's to step in and to to fund them because the engineers are smart and the companies are good. It's just that the economics aren't exactly where you'd want them to be right now. Yeah, well, so I, something I want to ask you about. There's this is actually really interesting. It says uh, that the company's R and D division holds an IASA design organization approval. Right. So it sounds like that can kind of shortcut the uh, certification process. Is that? Can you tell me a little bit about that? No. Well, Just they ma- maybe yeah. helps them get it there a little quicker. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. They're just, you just have more hands on deck to deal with uh, uh, certification issues. Now, you're, you're going to get in this sort of raging dispute about, uh, so the, there's sort of like two levels here. So you can go through EASA, you can go through the FAA to get, and, or Transport Canada or any of the certification authorities in, like in Brazil or in Japan to get your aircraft certified. So you're dealing with this sort of outside organization. In the case of EASA, you have to write EASA checks to come help you. If you mm-hmm. have organizational delegation, you have a EASA-like organization or an FAA, they call it ODA, organizational delegate delegation that, that acts as the FAA internal to your company. So in theory, uh, it should go faster, but you're going through the same checkboxes all the way through. And so the and this is where Boeing and the 737 got all tied up because Boeing was doing some of the the certification work internally to them and the FAA would sort of see the top level. The FAA engineers would see the top level. They weren't FAA engin- engineers weren't involved in all of it unless they held some specific things that they were going to be checking and they were going to take responsibility for. For the most part, these organizations organization delegations all the activity happens inside of those things so can it make it faster yes can it also cause problems like on the 737 yes (laughs) so it comes it comes with limitations and the limitation and as Boeing was drugging from front of the US Congress and that is not a fun couple of days that's what happens. That's the risk you take is that you're going to get drug in front of a, a governmental board. It's going to, quote unquote, hold you accountable for some engineer uh, interpreting data wrong or making a miscalculation or something. Or, uh, yeah. <laughs> so so you got to be careful. You got to be really careful with it. And uh, the feeling five years ago was, and the FAA was, and, and the hospital, all of them are pushing this. ODA, 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 ODA. And everyone's like, yay, okay, we got some independence. We don't have to call the FAA for everything. Yeah, from a management standpoint, yay. But from sometimes from the engineer's perspective, it's still the same amount of rigor. It doesn't really make that much difference, quite honestly. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening. And please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.